Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Let Safeway help you unleash your globe with your favorite personal care products. Right now at Safeway, get great deals on all your favorite personal care products, like Head & Shoulders Base Shampoo, Crest 3D Whitening Toothpaste, Listerine Antiseptic Mouthwash, Sensodyne Sensitivity Fresh Toothpaste, Degree Women Antiperspirant Deodorant, or Soft Soap Liquid Hand Soap. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more deals and specific details. Knife. G'day, welcome to Not A Knife. My name is Andrew and this is the show that's all about culture, unity, reviews and banter. It's proudly part of the Ozcast Network alongside a bunch of other great shows like Apple Slice Podcast, Yeah G'day and Hong Kong Confidential. Not A Knife is recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of Perth region and I want to pay respects to the elders both past and present. On this particular episode, we have a big bag of different things that I'm going to cover. I went and saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, so you don't have to. I also saw Brothers Nest, the new film from director Clayton Jacobson, starring both himself and his brother. And I also caught up with Clayton to discuss the film, so that's a really interesting discussion that I had there with him. I also answer a listener question, which came from Phil Markoff. So thanks very much, Phil, for sending me through an email and asking a question. And if you have a question, you can shoot it through to thecurbau at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to answer it as best as possible. So I touch on that, and that's regarding hearing impaired actors in relation to the great film that came out earlier this year, A Quiet Place, which you might have seen. Also, it is Refugee Week from 17th of June through to the 23rd of June. So I'm going to mention a few things about the ASRC Telethon, which is occurring on the 20th of June, and how you can support it. And finally, uh, the music that I'll be touching on this week is Astronomy Class, which is a great Australian hip-hop band, and there's a reason why I'll be touching on them a bit later on, which you have to stick around to the end of the episode to hear. So, a big bumper bag, let's jump into Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Proximity alert. Something's coming. Where does that tunnel lead? Well, it connects to the rest of the... Claire, it's the T-Rex. It's the T-Rex. Stop! It's not the T-Rex. Probably. Probably? Lava! 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 Deep breaths, Franklin. Director J.A. Bayona takes over from Colin Trevorrow with the latest entry in the Jurassic Park slash World series, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So at the end of the last film, of course, we essentially had a retread of the first Jurassic Park film where the park is existing and, well, everything goes amiss. People die pretty horrendously, dinosaurs get loose, dinosaurs roar, T-Rex gets, you know the victory win and all that kind of stuff. Basic, run-of-the-mill, dino action. Me, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was stupid, stupid fun. But 
Keep in mind as well, I'd also waited 14 years in between Jurassic Park 3 and the latest Jurassic Park film. You know, if it were up to me, I would be having a new Jurassic Park film in cinemas every single year. I don't think I could get tired of it. I do really enjoy the series. Well, that's at least what I was thinking before I went into Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Literally minutes up until the film opened, I was saying to my friend next to me, look, I'm really excited for this. I know that the last film was not good, but I tell you what, I was still able to enjoy it wholeheartedly. It was ridiculous, it was stupid, there were high heels, it was nuts. Um, but it had dinosaurs doing dinosaur stuff, and that was exciting and entertaining, so it filled that quota enough for me. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, however, doesn't. It has dinosaurs galore, but it fails dismally on a lot of different levels. It fails to be ridiculous. It wants to be ridiculous. And if you have been fortunate enough to read the uh, John Sayles script for the possible Jurassic Park 4 a uh, long, long time ago when Jurassic Park 4 was possibly going to be a thing, where really it goes nuts. It goes bonkers. And nuts and bonkers in the way that uh, dinosaurs get uh, employed in the military in some regards, and they make a human dinosaur hybrid and the concept art which you can find out and about on the internet i'll put a link in the show notes is absolutely nuts it's crazy it looks disturbing it looks bonkers but you know jurassic world fallen kingdom wants to play in that theme park wants to play in that world but it never manages to actually earn the right to do that and that all comes down to shitty shitty writing the dialogue is truly awful and unfortunately, Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt, while they try their hardest it's in other films, they just aren't given the right material or the direction, or maybe they're just not talented enough to actually imbue these lines, these pointless, dreary lines, with any kind of uh, interest or, or activity that moves their part of the story forward. Because really, keep in mind, people, if you don't know how films work, well, of course, these big-budget blockbuster things, they tend to have all the previs stuff done beforehand. What's previs stuff? So all that CGI noise, that technical nonsense, they've planned that out long before the film actually has started filming. So there's no chance to kind of adjust it on the fly or test out to see, hey, maybe this isn't working or this particular sequence is not going to have the impact it should do, because really, they have to tick all these particular notes. So, look, I'm not going to complain that a lot of the, the plot points are in the trailers, because, you know, there are people who don't watch trailers at all, and I think that's a pretty average complaint to say, oh, everything was spoiled in the trailers. Well, so be it. But, with that said, there are certain points which feel simply like they are there, to litter a trailer and make it enticing. So, for example, a climactic third act moment uh, where a newly conjured up dinosaur, because of course these things just come off a production line really, don't they? Uh, a newly conjured dinosaur called the Indoraptor, which is a mixture of whatever was in the Indominus Rex from the last film, and a raptor, which didn't make too much sense because I thought that a raptor was part of the Indominus Rex anyway, but hey, 
you know, that's all just semantics, isn't it? Anyway, there's a there's this really, really interesting shot of this Indoraptor, this new dinosaur, leering over a girl who is, you know, scared and terrified in a bed. Well, that shot is really, really impressive and certainly does evoke some some terrifying imagery. But the film never earns the right to be terrifying. Or rather, it never wants to be terrifying. It simply just wants to tick off a bunch of different things and, and get through these, these CGI moments and think that it's actually saying something and doing something with the text that it's, it's dealing with. So what is the text that it's dealing with? Well, the plot of this film is that there's a volcano on Island Nublar, which is the place where all of the, the theme park stuff was existing, and it suddenly becomes active and starts blowing apart everywhere. Well, that's an interesting thing, but it kind of feels like a trilogy capper thought. So in the sense that, hey, you know what? We've got to deal with all of this stuff, and why don't we ask the, the big question the big ethical question which is what would happen if an extinction event occurred to the dinosaurs again that's a really really fascinating interesting question but the volcano sequence is only in the first sort of half an hour of the film and while it's visually impressive and certainly there are some very haunting images one in particular of a brontosaurus uh, against a a cloud of, of smoke and ash as it falls all around him you know, that's that's really, really haunting imagery. But it ne- again, the film never earns the right to be haunting, to actually allow us as the viewers to feel moved by this particular sequence. Unfortunately, we just get the feeling that, hey, this is CGI and that's it. There is no gravity to the situation. There is no weight to what we're seeing on screen. And in turn, what it thinks it will what rather Derek Connolly and Colin Trevorrow who unfortunately Colin Trevorrow is getting behind the camera for the third film which uh, who knows what that's going to be like uh, when that comes out in 2021 so in three more years people will have to deal with this again um, but they are scripting the third one as well together and unfortunately their scripting talents are not great because you know I think of I think of how great Paul Verhoeven was as a director in the sense that he was able to look at, you know, the subtext of what he was portraying. He was able to do the big budget CGI stuff, you know, Starship Troopers or Robocop or Total Recall, that kind of science fiction stuff that really, really looks stunning. And if you're happy to just watch it and be like, okay, this is a man who was once a police officer and now he is a robot and he's still a police officer. If you're happy to watch that and just, you know, take it on surface level, that's perfectly fine. But I miss the subtext of a film of the director of Paul Verhoeven because he, you know, knew exactly what he was trying to do. And it feels like Derek Connolly and Colin Trevorrow are thinking that they're actually commenting on what Extinction is doing to the world. Like we are in currently in, you know, if you, you read the reports out there, fifth or sixth Extinction event you know, major extinction event around the world. There, there are uh, animals that are going extinct daily. It's disturbing. It really is. And what better way to comment on that than with the Jurassic Park series? After all, we've conjured up these creatures in this this story that Michael Crichton came up with. The, these creatures have been conjured up, and what happens when death is right next to them or going to wipe them out? Is it our job to look after them and and make sure that they're safe 
what happens to all the other animals around in the world that actually need our help a little bit more? And that, that's a serious question because, you know, in real life, uh, we are having, you know, this, this idea of bringing the woolly mammoth back to life. And it's kind of like, well, why are we doing that? That's probably not the smartest idea. So maybe I'm asking a little bit too much from my blockbuster entertainment, but I kind of hope that Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom would have addressed that in some regards. But this feels like it's a film of three parts, or three films rather in one. There's the volcano sequence, and once the dinosaurs are rescued and taken off the island, they're taken to this property in the middle of nowhere where they're sold on the black market. Now, that is also an interesting idea, and that was where I thought that the first Jurassic World film would naturally lead to, which is militarized dinosaurs. Now, again, the question is, why would you want to militarize dinosaurs? Well, velociraptors, if you can actually train them, then you might be able to use them out on the battlefield and that kind of stuff, which is what the plan is in place in this particular film. But it would have been more interesting if the film allowed itself to breathe in that space, allowed itself to just focus on that particular sequence and not cram in this extinction event with the the volcano. Because at two hours and 10 minutes long, it's already jam packed with too much stuff. And yet it feels like it's not enough. So the problem that we're still occurring with this particular entry in the Jurassic Park series is there's still nods to the original film which as a fan yeah it's a little bit nice to kind of go hey I know exactly what you're doing you know there is a sequence where the car that Tim crashed uh, down the the cliff after the T-Rex attack in um, Jurassic Park they it's just there it just exists in the the scenery and then gets swallowed up by lava and all right okay fine sure but then there are other elements as well that, that kind of get nodded to as well. You know, the run line that Laura Dern says uh, so well uh, gets kind of nodded at here as well. And then, you know, the raptor opening a door, that's nodded at too. Even so much as uh, when Lexi is uh, in, in the kitchen and she's trying to shut the door and tricks the raptor into uh, banging its head on, on a reflective surface. That sequence is even given an homage here as well. And it's kind of like, all right, that's really nice to see if you are that kind of uh, nostalgia-driven fan. But it's nothing new. And unfortunately, it's just retreading the same old, same old. And so it becomes boring. And yet, when the film actually decides to try and do something new and brings in this really very random plot point at the three-quarter mark, and you're kind of like, well, okay, what are we going to do with this? Where is this going? The film does nothing with this particular plot point and just leaves it in the air. It's redundant. It's stupid. And look, I'd be forgiving if the dino action was really, really entertaining. It's not. And that's a disappointment. Because the wooden acting, you know, the, the crummy dialogue, the, the poor plotting and stuff like that. We got all of that in Jurassic Park 3. And yet that film was really entertaining. A lot of fun. It was stupid, stupid fun. And it also knew what it needed to do. It knew that, hey, we're going to make a 90-minute film. You're going to get in. You're going to accept that it's stupid. And you're going to enjoy yourself. And then you get out and go on with your day. 
Unfortunately, with Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, it thinks that it's smarter than it is. It's not. It thinks it's more entertaining than it is. It's not. And it thinks that the lead actors are more charismatic than they are. They aren't. You know, Chris Pratt, look, I admire him as an actor in uh, in the Guardians of the Gal- Galaxy films, but there's a lot of visual noise that's going on in the Guardians of the Galaxy films, and there's a lot of talented people around him as well to carry through his kind of empty char- charisma, what he thinks is charisma at least. Because he's the, the, the center point of this particular film, he is the lead character to Bryce Dallas Howard's character. Uh, he's very boring. And whenever he's on screen, I almost fell asleep. And the same with Bryce Dallas Howard. She is kind of talented, I guess. But certainly not here. Certainly not here at all. And it's disappointing to see that that's the case from J.A. Bayona. He's a good director. And unfortunately, I think that the studio system has kind of crushed him a little bit. And he's not being given the free reign that he would usually be able to get with this kind of uh with this thing like monster calls is fantastic visually visually stunning and actually really really heartbreaking the impossible also visually stunning and the orphanage is great as well this is a real misstep a real disappointment you do not need to go and see this film and especially if you're a Jurassic Park fan you really don't need to go and see this film because you're just going to be really disappointed there is nothing in here that you're like I'm glad I saw this on the big screen. This gets one star from me. It's real disappointing. So instead of watching Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, may I recommend seeking out Q, The Winged Serpent. It's a film that came out a long, long time ago in the 80s, directed by Larry Cohen. And it is a silly, fun, entertaining film about a Aztec god, uh, Questacotal, it was a winged dragon-like female lizard that takes up residence in the Chrysler building. Chaos ensues. It is immensely more fun than Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Once you step inside here, you're in. What kind of criminals get caught? The dumb ones. You're kidding me. What's with all the cleaning? You've got like seven cleans in here. Failing to plan. Is planning to fail. I know that, Jeff. It's just a little intense seeing it all written down like this. We can't have bruises, no scuffs, no scratches. Next up is Brother's Nest, which is directed by Clayton Jacobson, and it stars Clayton Jacobson and his brother, Shane Jacobson. Clayton Jacobson, you may be familiar, is the director of Kenny, which also starred his brother. This is a better film than Kenny. Look, I like Kenny. I think it's fine. Uh, but it is the literal representation of toilet humor. Brother's Nest, on the other hand, is something that is in a completely different world than Kenny is. It's a dark film. It is a darkly comic film at times. Uh, but it's also a bit of a thriller. It's a bit of a drama. It's a bit, a bit of a family drama. And in my opinion, this film is best not knowing a heck of a lot about before you go and see it. So, with that in mind, I'll give you my review and my rating right now. I give it four stars. I think it's a really, really impressive film. If you are interested in uh, hearing a little bit more about it, here I go. If not, just take my word that you will enjoy this film and you will find it really, really fascinating and interesting. And go and see it. It comes out on 21st of June in cinemas all around Australia. 
well worthwhile supporting. You still here? Great. Okay, fine. So this is written by Jamie Brown uh, with additional material by Chris Parlow. And it is really about two brothers who are going to go and do something in their mother's house. And that's about it. That's all I'll say about the, the, the basic plot. And really, what I like so much about this is that the acting, the core performances from Shane and Clayton are stunning, are really, really great. You know that these people have lived a life together. And it's not just because they are brothers and they have lived a life together, you know, because I've seen siblings act on screen before and they have no chemistry whatsoever. But Shane and Clay have a immense amount of chemistry together. And it is because of their characters, Terry and Jeff, who they play respectively by Shane and, and Clay, they embody them so, so well. And you can tell that not only do they, as actors, have a shared history together, but their characters have a shared history together. And there is un- unspoken truths and, and unspoken things that really should be uh, talked about, you know, between each other as brothers that get raised and, and discussed in as the plot thickens and develops now the first kind of half hour takes a little bit for you to find your feet and understand exactly what's going on it does follow a three-act structure pretty darn well and it does a very good job of it you know that's that's the nice thing about it but once you know once that initial setup is done and then the plot machinations start rolling into place it gets quite intense and quite uh well violent in some ways as well so Particular shout out to Lynette Curran, who is always great to see on screen, but her performance here is just truly brilliant as well. I absolutely loved her performance. I think that she manages to steal the scene uh, in her short runtime there. She's fantastic. And also I want to shout out the cinematography by Peter Falk. This is a beautiful looking film. It's a really, really beautiful looking film. And the way that the color changes as the story progresses, where it's this darky lighty brown color murky brown color at the beginning and as it gets further along and night creeps on the darkness creeps in everywhere and there's reduced light and things like that it becomes really really atmospheric and very very interesting so yeah brother's nest please do head along and go and see it uh, it is a very, very solid film. And this is the kind of film that I think that we should be supporting out in Australian cinemas. It, it is something that I really enjoy. And I'm looking forward to going to see it again on the big screen. It's just a fantastic film. And once you've seen Brothers Nest, may I recommend going and checking out a almost forgotten Sam Raimi film from 1999, A Simple Plan, which stars Bill Paxton and uh, Billy Bob Thornton as well. And that's a really, really fantastic film. And just kind of develops in a really, really interesting way. I think uh, once Sam Raimi took on Spider-Man, people kind of forgot about that film. And uh, I think that's a shame because it's a, it's a really, really interesting film and, and looks fantastic too. Kind of, uh, obviously, if you're familiar with the fact that Sam Raimi uh, has worked with the Coen brothers in different regards along the way throughout their careers, um, there is kind of like a Coen brothers-y feel to that particular film just like there's a Coen brothers he feel to Brothers Nest and there was a comparison that somebody made in a review to Blood Simple and while it's uh, 
not exactly on the same level as Blood Simple, that you can see a thread there between those kinds of films. So check out Brother's Nest, check out A Simple Plan, both really great films. Let's have a listen to my interview with Clayton Jacobson. Yeah, g'day, Tim. Yeah, g'day, Leon. Yeah, Yeah, g'day, everyone. Do you like learning about Australian history? How about Australian culture? Want to know how we lost the infamous Emu War? Do you like rhetorical questions? If you answered yes to any of these, then Yeah, g'day, the podcast is for you. Here's how our fans describe the show. Life-changing. 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 Yeah, g'day, the podcast. Find it on Audio Boom, Apple Podcasts, and all great podcatchers. Yeah, g'day. It could be life changing. Apparently. Thanks for sitting down to have a chat. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The lovely Lunar Cinemas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really lovely. Yeah. And your film is fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Really, really impressive. It must be hard when you have to say the reverse. Well,. Yeah, I mean, honesty is difficult, yeah, isn't yeah. it? It's like, you know, okay, we're about to start the question. Let me just start by saying, jeez, oh, I hated your movie. Yeah. So, first question, why, you know. Why did you do this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, that's good. I'm glad you liked it. So, I guess the first question for me, then, is your distribution for this is a little bit different. Yes. Why and how did that come about? Okay, well, it came about because, um, because I have tried all the regular paths to making a film Mm -hmm. and 11 years after the release of Kenny I was still trying to do it and so I knew that that model wasn't working for me there are just too many gatekeepers and I like films that break moulds I like films that that are seemingly one thing and yet another Kenny is the kind of movie that no one would fund it's the kind of film where they would just assume it's going to be a certain thing and the same with this film. I was acutely aware that people could criticise it. Oh, it's like the first half feels a bit sort of um, like theatre, and then it comes becomes like it's like it's. And I had it said to me, it's like it's two different movies. So the the, tr- the trouble that I, I've found in the past is that it's just been really hard to get people on board with the the different kind of films that I'm trying to make. I I understand it. We all we all pigeonhole. There was a certain desire for people to see me repeat myself yeah but I just I just get too bored um, doing that so I was happy to and also um, uh, I just you know the average film takes eight to ten years to, to get made in yeah. this country and which is insane yeah you know I've got 50 films in me but I've only got another 20 years worth of living when and in the Australian system that means two more movies so um, I want to change that. And so the model came about, okay, maybe I've got to lower my expectations in the type of budget that I want to work in. Mm-hmm. And then I just had to think about how I made Kenny, and Kenny was made outside of the system. And it was made in a very maverick sort of way. And, and so I thought, well, can I apply the very best of what we did with Kenny to the new way of thinking? And at the end of the day, what I realised was the, the most outstanding contribution to the film Finding an Audience with Kenny was in fact the relationship that we built with the regional and independent cinemas. And the work that we did to allow those cinemas to have a personal connection. Mm. And that became very apparent when we went to the movie convention to pitch our model. And with that fail, almost every cinema that we spoke to that had had Kenny before we got to pitch anything to them, they wanted to tell us their story about their connection to the film. Yep. And I thought that was actually really quite interesting and telling because, you know, 
what is there, six films playing, uh, eight films playing here. Yeah. I can't imagine how many movies have played since Kenny, but the fact that they had a memory of what that, exp- yeah, <laughs> what that yeah. release was like <laughs> is just remarkable in itself. So I, I knew that there was something to be said for giving uh, a, a, an independent cinema a chance to have a personal connection. And I thought, can we up the ante on the connection that we had with Kenny, instead of it just being a connection at the, at the tail end of the film, can we in fact get them talking and encouraging their audiences from the very beginning, before the film's even made? Yeah. And what if they got a bit of skin in the game and became part of that process? It was a bit of a gamble, but they, they, they actually loved the idea. And, you know, and the bottom line is, uh, I'm here now doing the very thing that I promised, which is um, you know, we would give them specialised marketing and, and massaging of, of, of the tools you know, required to try and get an audience in. Yeah. Do you see that being the symbiotic relationship between filmmaker and, and cinema going forward for Australian cinema? Oh, absolutely, it has to be. I mean, it's, um, look, you know, the word event cinema mm. didn't exist yeah. 10 years ago. It's, um, it exists now because you have to find creative ways to get an audience into it. There's just too much content. There's um, so many ways that we can um, consume it. So, you know, I actually think it's an exciting time. I like what I see. and I love that when I go to the movies now, I'm in a really comfortable chair. Yeah. Uh, I like that there's much greater variety in the, in the tucker box. You know, yeah, like, yeah. Like a little local where I go to, have, they have this incredible specialised popcorn. And it's like, like five different flavours of this, right. you know, this popcorn and, um, and really specialised food. My other cinema, I go, I'm lucky I've got about four that are near where we live. And one of them does the most incredible sliders and, you know, stuff like sure. this. And, it's, and it's, not, um, it's not all at this great expense. It's, uh, so I do think it is about um, yeah, forming a greater relationship between the patrons in the cinema, but the patrons cinema and the filmmakers. Yeah. And look, even the big films know this. Look, like I was telling someone the other day, you, you look at the marketing that Deadpool mm. have had. Now, there is a film that I actually thoroughly enjoy that is riddled with enough good gags and material to, to make a thousand trailers yeah. that would get an audience in. Yeah. But they did not rest on their laurels. They went out and they did... They, the, the campaign was quite enormous. It's nuts. The amount of sort of content that they created that had nothing to do with the movie was pretty enormous. I think I, I, think I counted about... 10 or 12 different separate campaigns that, uh, and that again was because the filmmakers and the stars were basically you know one and the same yeah and so the same with this you know Shane's an executive on the, on the film we all have a vested interest in finding an audience you've got to think out, you can't just you can't just put your film in an envelope and send it out and hope people will go and see it yeah it's a, as you're saying the, the, the scene has completely changed isn't yeah. it like the grower doesn't really exist anymore. If it's not made an impact in the first couple of weeks, then it struggles. And that, that for me, I absolutely adore and love Australian cinema. So it breaks my heart when films you yeah. know, need an audience and they just don't rock up. Look, and the other problem is, of course, and I harp on about this all the time, um, I understand why an Australian film will be taken off after the first weekend, mm-hmm. but Australian films only work through word of mouth. Yeah. And word of mouth never, ha- word of mouth cannot happen. Like if your mate buys a great Les Paul guitar, yeah, the phone doesn't ring an hour later with everyone you've ever known telling. Have you heard about? <laughs> have you heard? You know, I want to, I want to see your Les Paul guitar. It takes a few weeks for them to find out you've gone out and bought this. Yeah. 
But apparently in film, we expect every Aussie to go out and watch a new movie on the first weekend. And I keep reminding people that Kenny took five weeks before it hit its peak. Yeah. And when I say its peak, its first week was lousy. In fact, I remember Man Man freaking out. But, we, but I said, no, no, we've got lots of massaging of marketing and, and, and media that we want to do that we'll see the film through for the next... And we did the same thing with this. It's, you know, the deal we struck with the cinemas is you can have the film for three months. Mm. Now, you may not want the film for three months, but the point is we're going to work very hard to al- allow you to have autonomy over when and how you show the film. Yeah. To allow an audience to really get to a point where they do hear whether the film is any good or not. Generally speaking, we only hear about Australian films in cinema when we're here that it's been removed. Yep. And you know, and you're making, uh, you know, making a decision on whether or not the film was worthy or not when you're seeing it on, on a, on a, on Netflix. Exactly, and and I think that's the frustrating thing. We will talk about your film, uh, besides you know distribution oh, and okay. stuff like that. <laughs> but I, I am passionate about this because I know I know what we went through to get Kenny into to, and people think the film just kind of sold itself. But people forget that it's not easy to get people to see an Australian film, let alone one that's shot on video, let alone one that has no stars, let alone one that is actually about a guy that works in toilets. Yeah. You know, everything about Kenny was not the sort of thing that would get you into a film. Yeah. And as I kept saying to everyone when we were promoting it, I'm not convinced I would even see the film yet. You know, like yeah. if I hadn't made it, I'd be still waiting for DVD. Well, so, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. Uh, like I've pushed into my my mum who enjoys movies and stuff like that because there would be times where I'd talk to her about an Australian film and then it would be two or three weeks later she would go, I'm going to go and see that film yes. and it wouldn't exist. And so when That's Not My Dog came out earlier this year, I said to her, if you are interested in going to see this film, go and see it in the first week. Yes. She went and saw it first week and it was gone... You know, and it was on stand, and then she picked up the DVD as soon as it came out. I'm like, you did exactly what you should you, be yeah, doing. <laughs> yeah, and it is, it's, and it's heartbreaking because, um, you know, again, it's, it just takes a, a while for it to cut through. I don't trust the first person that tells me an Australian film's good. Right. You know, um, the second person that tells me, I go, okay, well, there might be something in it. Okay. The third person that tells me, okay, well, there's definitely... And then often I will go on the fourth recommendation. Yeah. And I'm in the foyer and some other bloody movie, Standy or Marketing, will drag me in. It'll, I'll kind of have a, I'll have a, a, a little uh, conniption in the foyer and I'll go and see something a little safer. Yeah. And, and I think that's a fairly common experience yeah um so you've got to you know you need it needs the time it needs the time to percolate and um you know we're hoping that we can um that audiences will you know that the cinemas will hang in there and allow people to talk about it because the feedback has been good you know it's harder if you're not getting good feedback but we have had like like we were very lucky with kenny same with this we we seem to be getting on the whole you know 70 percent to 75 percent of people are really enjoying the film like big time so you know that's a good sign yeah i think for me what i like about it a lot is you know the core aspect of it is about family yes you know and there's you and shane obviously which is stunning you know, you, you two work so well off each other. But then the relationship you have with other people as they pop up is really, really great as well. And 
as a you know film viewer and stuff like that, that's the kind of thing that you can relate to. Yes. Obviously, maybe not in the way that this story plays out. But no. <laughs> yeah, no, we turn the dial, we turn the heat up a little, yeah, a little, a little, a little bright in this one. But that is that is the thing that I look. I think relationships and I think families are complicated. Yep. And and I think um, good families, good working families, still have their complications. And you've only got to listen to a group of friends around Christmas time talking about the fear or the terror that they attribute. Christmas with if they when you know all the things they're looking forward to or not looking forward to you know I can't wait till we have our Christmas dinner but I hope he doesn't bring Sandra you know yeah. or, or you know whatever or you know every time I give them a present I get told blah 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 or why you know so they're very it's you know and family is a is a very is something that I'm interested in mm-hmm. you know I think I think the root of all good and evil basically comes from family yeah you know the prisons just riddled with little boys that didn't get enough love and that's what this film is about is about these every single character in their own way is searching for some kind of validation mm. and that they either feel that it's being abused misused or not represented at all yeah and there are nearly all the characters are sort of working on false assumptions um and mm. that's and i think that's very common you know uh, that thing of put yourself in someone else's shoes before you make judgment is not it's not that well practiced, you know. We tend to well. There's a, there's a real vibe of honesty and the value of honesty in there as well. And you know, there are things that are said that are unsaid and all this kind of stuff, which yes. you just like, you know, as a viewer, you're like, Jesus, if you'd only just said, yeah, this, this wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, if they, <laughs> if they had been honest with each other much earlier, the brothers could have, you know. But there was, um, they had talked themselves into these riddles, and you know, I think the older brother, my characters. Uh, um, has has basically over mythologized his father and yeah. and has sort of talked himself into a, into a conundrum. And also, we're meeting them. We're meeting both of these boys. In fact, every character is at a, is at a form of crossroads, and, and that that's why and that's when things go horribly wrong in in, in, mm. in, fa- in family dynamics. When all of the the norms are sort of thrown slightly off balance. Yeah. If someone is in the family is sick. Someone injures themselves, or someone, you know, leaves the country. You know, the dynamic shifts. Mm. Suddenly, the person that seemed to be the glue in the family is gone, and the children are set amongst themselves. Yeah. You know, it's a very common thing, and I think that's what people will will find interesting, and hopefully, that they will relate to when they see this film. Yeah, I'm curious about you mentioned the over mythologizing of fathers and stuff like that, which is a subtle theme throughout the film in, in a lot of ways and that's something which I've personally been thinking about a lot in the representation of in cinema and how modern men deal with that was that something that you actively decided to yeah well fathers are play a big part like my dad is a very big part of my life yeah. um, uh, I moved in with him when I was very young I, I helped him through the death of his second wife uh, he, he, he then lost he's uh, uh, he then had another relationship that lasted a number of years, and, and sadly she passed. And I've sort of, I've I've been there for my dad, and, and vice versa. He's been there for me. We're, we're thick as thieves, and we're like we're good friends, but we're also father and son. Mm-hmm. And um, and with and but we're also very both very passionate. And so I can honestly say that with my dad and I, we've we've kind of experienced almost every emotion you can 
Like there are lines in this film that came straight out, straight out of his mouth. Right. You know? You've always been a disappointment to me, son. I want you to know that. Was something that my dad said to me. And the, the reason why he said it is that my father is ex-carnival stock and my grandfather died when he was very young. And so my nan brought up this family in a tent mm. until my dad was 23 years of age. And the boys were all big men. And the only way she could control them was with her tongue. Right. So she had this cutting tongue, you know, which you see a little bit of in, in, uh, in Lynette's character. Yeah. And that was her weapon, was that she would, she would literally disown you with, with, with your tongue. And so if I get Dad at a bad moment, and he's had one too many, and, you know, in this one particular case we had a big blue, and he doesn't mind me telling the story... Um, you know, I tried. To, I, I had enough of him, and I said, "Get out of the car." I pulled the car over, and then he just looked at me and he just said, oh, "What a r- dirty effing dog you turned out to be!" <laughs> and I and I just said, "Keep him coming, Dad." I'll, you know, my son was in the back seat, yeah. and uh, when we got out, he said, uh, "He said that that was remarkable." I said, "Look, I hope it, I hope that helps you understand who I am a little bit and yeah. where I come from, because father-son relationships are complex, and sometimes, you know, I think in 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 in, in Jeff's case." He hasn't had that relationship. He had the beginnings of a father-son relationship, and it was cut short. Yeah. And unfortunately, in his case, um, the father was probably a bit of a rat bag, and it's all he had to go on. So he's had to, he's had to build a, a father from yeah. nothing. And um, so I do love, I love the complexity of, of family and the complexity of dyna- the family dynamic. And, uh, and I love not taking sides. Yeah. Like, I, I think every single character in this film has really, is kind of sad and, and funny and, and tragic and all have good reason to behave the way they behave. Yeah, and, the, and that's the thing of good writing and good direction and good acting is that you can understand completely from every single person's perspective what's going on. Yes, yes. Which is fantastic. Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about the casting of Lynette. Yeah. I think she's fantastic. Isn't she great? She's really good. Oh, I love her. And, you know, I won't obviously go into details no. and all that kind of stuff, but I think that, you know, the way you guys work off each other is just brilliant. Yeah, she, she is something else. I, I'm a huge fan. So I, I um, I've, you know, she's been in so much great oh, yeah. Australian, you know, it, it's, well, I was actually recently was just combing through some of her past work, you know, and, uh, and realized, God, we really did grow up with her, you know, um, and I always tease her and say, you know, she was the original um, Jackie Weaver. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and she actually said they often joke with each other about that. But, um. But I, I fell head over heels for in the boys because I just thought it was a really wonderful, complex um, performance. And I've often thought, um, you know, with our own mythologising of, um, of characters like Ned Kelly, um, I've often thought that, that no one has ever really... I've often thought that Ned Kelly's mother was probably like the, the, the mother in the, the boys because whenever I've read any articles about... Ned Kelly's mother I thought this, that's a tough lady that's a woman that's had to bring up some yeah. tough boys on her own and um, so Lynette one, well, the wonderful thing about her is there is a, such a vulnerability to it but also such this amazing sort of venom mm. and strength and sort of inner strength in her so she was able to bring all that to the table and I recently saw her in a film that she was in with Shane which was A Few Less Men Yeah. and when I saw that it, it was such a brave and very funny yeah. performance. I thought, oh, she has, she basically has such great range. Um, she'll really bring something fantastic to this. So I, 
I have such fond memories of when Shane and I sat down with her and talked about what we were looking for and asked her to bring us. You know, we, she, we got her talking about you know her own parents, and, and she just uh, it was just a joy to have her on set. And when she finally lets loose, it's yeah, it's you, crazy. You do not want to be in the way of that. <laughs> you, you can feel that tongue yeah. whip, and it's yeah. just brilliant. Well, yeah. she reduces them to little boys. Yeah, like that, that's the strength of the, the, the her character. As you see the you see the amount of manipulation that goes on. Yeah, so it's that's why the Truman Show. Oh yeah, is such a wonderful film because it's basically. I had a friend who had a nervous breakdown watching The Truman Show. Right. Because he suddenly realised that the boundaries in his life that he thought he was all... that that he had some autonomy over, he realised that The Truman Show was the perfect metaphor for parenthood. Right. And, um, and, And I think... That's why I responded to the Truman Show. Is that like the the way you behave in life? You so think is your own, but so much of it has been manipulated. Yeah. Sometimes for good reasons, and sometimes not so healthy reasons. Um, and in this particular family, there's been a lot of unhealthy. Yeah. Manipulation. <laughs> All right. Last question before we wrap up. Uh, it's a question I ask everybody, especially Australian filmmakers. I'm always curious to hear what is an Australian film that you recommend people seek out? Oh, that, that they haven't seen for a while? Oh, no, that you really like yourself. Well, it's, uh, it's funny. Uh, one of my uh, favourite Australian films was The Odd Angry Shot. Yeah, great. And, and, and the reason for yeah. that, again, was family. I had a, an uncle who was in Vietnam, and we would receive postcards from him, and my mother would read them out to us when we were kids. But they always just banged on about how pretty the jungle was. And I was sort of acutely aware that they were at war over there. And I thought, why am I just getting all these postcards of, you know, gee, it's really pretty here. And I, worked, I found out later on that, that he was, you know, saving us all from the truth. Mm. And I went and saw The Odd Angry Shot as, because I dearly wanted to know what his experience was. Yeah. And because it was... I've watched so many American Vietnam films. And this was a uniquely Australian story about Australians in war. And um, I, I felt like I understood my... You know, it, it was exactly the thing we're talking about. I find good filmmaking is when there's a movie on, on the screen, mm-hmm. being, you know, the light's hitting you and there's a beautiful story being told, but there's another story going on in your own head, and it's this duality of the, the story that's playing out in your own mind while being entertained on the screen. Yeah. And, and that, that was one of those Aussie films that did it for me, where I had a much better understanding for my uncle uh, and what they went through and I thought it was really an entertaining funny and tragic film it's funny I, I tend to re- I tend to have this thing for films that are that have a dark edge but there's this sort of you know hu- uh, humour yeah you know. yeah great choice thank yeah. you very much for your time thank you I appreciate it thank you Cheers. thanks for seeing the film so oh, I appreciate yeah. it and the winner is Marley Matlin I just want to thank a lot of people. I, uh, to tell you the truth, I didn't prepare for this speech, but I definitely want to thank the Academy and its members. And I want to thank all those special people in the film, and I can name them Randa Haynes, Patrick Palmer, the entire cast and crew, and particularly William Hurt, for his great support and love in this film. And I want to thank my mother and father, Eric, Mark, Gloria, Zachary, and Liz. They're here tonight with me. 
and I just want to thank all of you. I love you. That is the audio of Oscar winner Miley Matlin's speech as she won her Oscar in 1986 for her performance in Children of a Lesser God. It was her first performance in a film and also the only win for a hearing impaired actor ever to win an Oscar, uh, which is kind of surprising in a lot of ways, but also not really that surprising given how few hearing impaired actors are actually employed in cinema. And so I'm answering this question that I got from Philip Markov through the email, which again, you can send me an email if you have a question or a suggestion or literally anything to thecurbau at gmail.com. And one of the things which he mentioned was, I'd like to hear hearing impairments in the film industry. He only recently just saw a hearing impaired character played by a hearing impaired person, which was in a quiet place. And his question was, I was curious on what your opinion on this as well as other disabilities featured in films are. Well, I think that there really needs to be a heck of a lot more hearing impaired actors employed in film. But on top of that, you know, we actually have to look at different areas that needs to be addressed for people's with people living with disabilities or people with impairments or anything like that, that they need to actually be employed in cinema. So, you know, I'm talking about blind people as well. When was the last time you actually saw a blind person in film played by a blind person? You can probably think of something like Alec Baldwin as a blind man uh, in whatever that film was that he did. And, you know, it's really not that accurate as to how blind people actually live their lives, how they interact with the world around them. They're not usually bumping into things, which is often the way that actors might consider, uh, you know, being blind, how they perform being blind. So I did a bit of a look around to find out other roles or other performances where there are hearing impaired actors actually playing characters who are hearing impaired. So of course we have Miley Matlin in Children of a Lesser God which, if you haven't seen, is a fantastic film. It really is. Unfortunately for Marley, she's actually had a quite a uh, good career and really, really very prolific career. But most recently in A Quiet Place is Millicent Simmons, who also previously was in Todd Haynes' last film, Wonderstruck, which didn't get much of a release, well, literally anywhere around the world. I think it had a very, very, very short theatrical run in Australia. Um, but from what I understand, it's now available to watch on Amazon Prime. Uh, and she is in that particular film too. And, you know, it's fantastic to see young actors coming up and actually, uh, you know, doing great performances, just like she does in A Quiet Place. And, you know, small spoiler alert for A Quiet Place. If you haven't seen it, please uh, do seek it out. It's a very, very solid film. I do think it has some uh, plot uh, plot problems along the way, um, but the core elements of it work very, very well. And again, spoiler alert, but the key thing that I think works so well about A Quiet Place is the fact that the hero of the story is the deaf girl. Now, of course, the whole point is that uh, these aliens or these creatures that have appeared, uh, they they recognize things by sound. And so she manages to save the day using a malfunctioning hearing aid piece, which is, you know, it's great. And I think that's the key thing that we need to recognize and, and filmmakers really need to recognize is that, you know, hey, 
maybe let's start putting uh, you know disabled actors or hearing impaired actors in these roles and make them heroes as well. Don't make their disability or their impairment, you know, don't make it a problem that they have to live with because to them it's not a problem they have to live with at all. And, you know, it is kind of condescending in a lot of ways to see that particular thing occur. And, you know, I I get a little bit frustrated when, you know, films or, or characters are manipulated in certain ways and I'm thinking particularly of an Australian film that came out last year called Red Christmas and the actor Gerard O'Dwyer is in it. He's very very solid in the film uh, but unfortunately the story uh, you know it's a very controversial story uh, and you know I, I do wonder if possibly the controversy about the story is was more just an attention grabber to to kind of say hey here's a horror film that really is going to push your boundaries and the plot for Red Christmas is that there is a woman who is uh, played by Dee Wallace who's having Christmas at her house and somebody a stranger that appears at her door and it turns out that way back when in the 70s uh, she had an abortion and while she was having an abortion uh, the clinic was attacked and for some reason the fetus didn't die and somebody takes it in and raises it up and as an adult it turns into quite a disfigured person it's the film wishes that it is able to uh, address these kinds of uh, the issues of, of abortion, the pro and against abortion, and unfortunately it fails completely. And it fails completely because of the casting of Gerard O'Dwyer, who again, I repeat, is very, very good in his role, but he has Down syndrome. And there is a moment in the film where he questions his mother as to say, would you have aborted me? And that's a really intense moment that the film actually doesn't deserve because the rest of the film is not that good. And unfortunately, you know, maybe under better hands, that kind of idea would have been explored better, but it actually comes off as offensive and a bit crass. And I know that Gerard, like, uh, listened to the commentary that was on the DVD. It is available through uh, Umbrella Entertainment. So if it does sound like something that you're interested in watching, then certainly you can seek it out there. And the commentary is interesting, that's for sure. And Gerard was quite interested in, in telling that kind of story, but it doesn't stop it from feeling just a touch offensive. So let's head back to the hearing impaired actor list for a moment there. And we've got Marley Matlin, as I mentioned, in Children of a Lesser God. And she was also in the Alex Cox film, uh, Walker 2, which is out in the Criterion label. I haven't seen it. It is on my shame pile. I will get to it eventually. And then, of course, we have A Quiet Place and Wonderstruck. And then we also have Baby Driver, who... The actor C.J. Jones, who plays Baby Driver's foster parent, uh, is hearing impaired, which, you know, it's nice to see that in a film that is focused around, uh, you know, hearing impairments and and things like that, or at least tinnitus and and that kind of thing, um, you know, that they actually employed a hearing impaired actor in a significant role. So that's good to see. Hats off to you, Edgar Wright. And then also, unfortunately, I was reminded of the film from 2014, The Tribe, uh, which is a really very disturbing kind of film. But I tell you what, it is one, if you don't mind challenging films, it's Ukrainian film and it uses Ukrainian sign language, which understandably is not a very highly used language around the world. This film does not have subtitles at all. Uh, It is 
all done in uh, sign language. The communication is all in sign language. There is noise and stuff like that, people running through halls and other things occurring. But for the most part, you are only gleaning what is going on in the story uh, from what you're seeing from the characters' actions. It's intense, it is very brutal in a lot of ways, and it is a difficult film to sit through. But it's an impressive one, at least. The, the actors are superb and fantastic. What I am slightly concerned about with hearing impaired actors is that, you know, with The Tribe, you know, it's a great film. And because it's foreign, uh, you know, it gets a bit of notoriety and a, a bit of attention. Other than that, it seems like people with disability or people with hearing impairments, uh, when they are cast in films, it tends to be a bit of a novelty. And that's that's a really, really frustrating thing because it should not be a novelty. It should just be, you know, every person day-to-day life kind of experiences. And, you know, I think that's a thing that people forget is that, you know, there are people with disabilities, there are people with uh, hearing impairments or blind, you know, living through life around you. And because the cinema should, like cinema technically should reflect the life that we live and the, the, the world that we live in. But it doesn't take a, you know, a genius to realize that, you know, there is a reason why the Oscar so white hashtag exists. You know, April didn't create that just for nothing, there is a unfortunately uh, terrible, terrible case of whitewashing in cinema, and there is also a terrible case of what's termed the term which I came to know through uh, the actor Quentin Kennehan, who you know you might know him as a uh, comedian from Australia, but he is also in the Mad Max Fury Road film as well, and he. The term that I came to know through a podcast that he did with with Tom Ballard called Like I'm a Six-Year-Old is the term cripping up, which I found really, really interesting. And he took the term from a really fascinating article, which I'll put the link to both that episode that he did on Like I'm a Six-Year-Old and this particular article, which is written by Frances Ryan. And she says, the title of this article is, we wouldn't accept actors blacking up so why applaud cripping up? And the first, uh, I'll read the first couple of paragraphs of this article. It's quite interesting. It says, if you do a film about the Holocaust, you're guaranteed an Oscar, goes the famous Kate Winslet joke in extras. The same can be said for an actor doing a film about disability. Unless you're a disabled actor, that is. Then you're lucky to even get the part. Eddie Redmayne won a Golden Globe for his portrayal of Stephen Hawking in The Theory of Everything and eventually went on to win the Oscar. He became the latest in a long line of non-disabled actors to portray disabled characters and to walk away literally with an award for doing so. From Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot to Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man, the ability to play disability is a definite asset for an actor, a source of genuine acclaim. And... You know, it's interesting as well, the follow-up film that Eddie Redmayne got an Oscar nomination for as well is The Danish Girl, which, you know, raises another topic about transgender folk being portrayed in film. Now, unfortunately, trans actors are few and far between, although they are becoming more and more common in cinema and TV, which is great to see. We need more trans actors uh, portraying trans roles and, you know, telling trans stories out in cinema. But we don't need more straight or cisgender actors portraying trans characters 
and then in turn getting an Oscar nomination for it. We need less of that. We need more casting of you know people who are who they are as people. We don't need actors to do what they're doing, which is acting and pretending to be somebody when there is a wealth of, of actors out there who can actually fit those roles, you know, who can actually provide a hearing impaired actor to take the plates of, of somebody out there. On TV, there seems to be a little bit more fertile ground for actors with disabilities to be able to play characters with disabilities. Uh, take the TV show Speechless, for example, which takes the, you know, its title literally refers to one of the characters who cannot talk and has to have a helper to be able to read out what he is signing on his, uh, on his board. It's a great show. It's a great comedy. I recommend seeking it out. Then there's also Atticus Schaefer, who played the role of Brick in The Middle, which recently finished up. And he has osteogenesis imperfecta. So he he's an actor with a disability. And he does a great job. It, it, you know, they, they made it part of his character, which is fantastic. And it's a really, really entertaining show. I highly recommend Seeking Out The Middle if you haven't seen it. And then Gaten Matarazzo from Stranger Things as well. And of course, RJ Mitty in Breaking Bad. Over in the other country, in the UK, there's Liz Carr and Silent Witness as well. So there are certainly actors out there in TV that are employed who are disabled. And closer to home as well, in one of my favourite films from 2016, is Chris Bunton in Down Under, who actually is an Olympian too. And he's fantastic in that particular film and is kind of a voice of reason in Down Under, which is a dark comedy and I recommend seeking it out. So... You know, if we look a little bit further than Cinema 2, which I, I hope to do with this particular podcast and being able to look more than uh, look at more than just cinema. If we look at, say, Triple J, who, unfortunately, I cannot remember the newsreader's name, but she is sight impaired. And for her to read through the news and, and get the news read out every day, and I don't think she's actually a news presenter there anymore in Triple J, but she used to be, and it was really, really interesting heard her talking about how she's sight impaired, so she has to listen to the news come through a headset which reads what the news is, and she repeats it in a clearer voice and adds a bit of uh, texture to it as well. It was great to see that Triple J had actually employed somebody who was sight impaired for a purely audio venture. So that's, that's nice to see. On Twitter recently, there was a really interesting thread, and I'll try and put a link in the show notes as well, that was written from the perspective of a sight-impaired person. Dr. Amy Kavanagh, who, as she is self-described on Twitter, as a visually impaired lefty feminist, a disability charity worker. And she tweets under the hashtag CaneAdventures and with the username BlondeHistorian. And it was basically suggesting that we take a look at the world around us and recognize that, you know, the world around us is built to accommodate more than just able-bodied people and so in particular she was explaining why the bumps on the road were the way they are in regards to crossing the road for sight impaired people or blind people and how what the different ones mean and and what the different bumps mean it's a really really fascinating thread and certainly opens your eyes to the world around you because you know the the world is designed in a way that you know, not just sight-able people can actually get around. We need to be able to make the world able and accessible for all. 
for people in wheelchairs, for people who are hearing impaired, for people who are sight impaired. You know, it needs to be accessible to all. This is a universal world. So again, I'll throw that link in the show notes. So thank you very much, Phil, for that particular question. I found it really, really interesting doing some reading up about uh, different hearing impairment performances in cinema and also just looking a little bit further abroad. And maybe that might answer why I get a little bit critical of uh, actors who are portraying people with disabilities when they really shouldn't do. You know, I'm, I'm quite disappointed in some regards to say, you know, the new upcoming Joaquin Phoenix film, Careful, He Won't Get Far on Foot, uh, I think that's the title of it. And, you know, I'm a bit disappointed in the fact that, yes, there are supporting actors who are, you know, certainly disabled in that particular film, but the lead actor played by Joaquin Phoenix or lead character played by Joaquin Phoenix, you know, I'm a bit disappointed in the fact that he is in a wheelchair and essentially cripping up for this particular film. It still looks interesting and I will still see it and I'll, I'll provide a, a review when I do finally get to see it soon at the Revelation Film Festival. Um, but going into it, I am just a little bit like, oh, really, do you have to? That is the sound of astronomy classes for Bering in a tuk-tuk with the guest vocalist Shrey Tanti, who is part of the Cambodian Space Project band. And, you know, sad news earlier this year in March where, unfortunately, she died after a car accident. And I came to know her voice through astronomy class, which is a great, great Australian hip-hop band uh, on the label Elephant Tracks. They also house other great artists like Earth Boy and Horror Show and The Herd. And you may get a little bit tired of me banging on about Elephant Tracks. I am a huge fan of their work. After all, I did uh, put Earth Boy on the last episode and here I am putting Astronomy Class on this episode. I promise I'll go with something different next time. But yeah, Astronomy Class is fantastic and their album Mekong Delta Sunrise is a really very beautiful album especially uh, because of the inclusion of Stray's voice it really 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 amplifies the connection between Australia and Cambodia in this particular album Uh, I highly recommend seeking it out because it tells you a heck of a lot about the history of Cambodia in a hip-hop album which you probably would not usually expect to get but I love it I really really love it and I love it because of Stray's voice and it's it's really devastating that she's no longer with us. Uh, you know, it's devastating that her voice is no longer around to hear. It's devastating for her family as well. So with that in mind, I'm going to play a little bit of one of her songs, Whiskey Cambodia, which is under the band Cambodia Space Project. If you like what you hear, then head over to CambodiaSpaceProject.org. They have a bunch of different Uh, history about the band the discography is there there is a store there where you can purchase stuff and also to support a fundraiser to help out her family after she is now gone also if you are interested there's a really great documentary about the Cambodia Space Project unfortunately it's a little bit difficult to find but I'll try and find a link and put it in the show notes
Until then, here is Whiskey Cambodia. just listen to that all day long it's really really fantastic so again make sure to head over to cambodianspaceproject.org i'll stick a link in the show notes it's well worth listening to more of that if you like what you heard also as we wrap up this week it is refugee week in australia follow the hashtag on twitter and social media hashtag with refugees that's the theme for refugee week in 2018 in australia What does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, we stand with refugees and around the world, we need to stand with refugees even more and, you know, stand up for underrepresented voices. Unfortunately, in Australia, we still house refugees, house asylum seekers on terrible, terrible conditions in Nauru and Manus Island. And unfortunately, you know, we have really really terrible government who doesn't care about these people at all so much so that recently there have been two deaths on both Nauru and Manus Island uh, one in May and the other one just happening the other day on the 15th of June and it's terrible it is really terrible this is 12 people who have died in Australia's offshore processing and the fifth just on the other day on Nauru. And that's why I want to highlight that it's Refugee Week here in Australia, Uh, especially when, you know, unfortunately the Australian government, as I I keep on mentioning, they don't care about these people, Uh, so much so that uh, in the death in May, which was off uh, a gentleman on Manus Island who took his own life, his name was Salim, and Con Karapana Giotidis, who is the head of ASRC, the Asylum Seeker Refuge Centre, which is based in Melbourne, when he called up Salim's wife to pass on his, his sympathies, she hadn't been advised that her husband had taken his own life by the Australian government at all, which is devastating. You know, the, these people are in our care and 
unfortunately, the Australian government just doesn't care at all. And that's where this particular week is very important. Refugee week is hugely important to understand the stories of refugees around the world, not just in Australia, but in America, in Europe, in the UK. You know, we need to understand refugee stories around the world. And so one of the things that really helps out is, you know, just doing a search about refugee stories, just doing a search for refugee week in your local area to see what you can do to help out. Or if you're in Australia, uh, support the ASRC. I support the ASRC every single month. I, I donate to them monthly, and that helps keep uh, roofs over the heads of, of asylum seekers. It helps keep them, them fed, them warm, especially in the winter period, uh, especially when their funding uh, keeps on getting taken away from them and their ability to live in Australia and safety in Australia keeps on getting reduced and reduced. So that's where a day like the ASRC Telethon, which occurs on Wednesday the 20th of June, so only in a few days' time, and it runs from 6am through to 10pm, that's Eastern States time. Uh, Follow the hashtag ASRC Telethon on Twitter as well. Uh, It's why that particular day is really important to help get this funding for that particular centre. Their contact number is 1-300-692-772. That number again is 1-300-692-772. The website is asrc.org.au. Last year, they managed to raise up $660,000 in just one day. Uh, So fingers crossed uh, they can actually do even better this year. That $660,000 was double than the first year that they ran it in 2016. So, you know, fingers crossed that people get out their wallets and support them. And even if you can't, at least head over to the website to find out what else you can do or at least, you know, follow that that particular uh, hashtag on Twitter and head over and do a search for Refugee Week. Again, look in your area and see what you can do and help out because uh, we are more fortunate than people who are you know, escaping war, uh, escaping poverty, and we've got to do our bit to help people out. And that's what I hope to do with this particular show, which is highlight these kinds of things and talk about these these kinds of uh, problems and stuff like that. It's not always about film. It's not always about music. As I say at the beginning, it is about culture. It is about unity. It is about reviews. It is about banter. And that's what I enjoy doing on the show. And, you know, this is only two episodes in, but I hope that you've enjoyed listening to what I have to say. I know that just one sole voice banging on in the middle of the night is uh, probably a little bit droning at times. But uh, hopefully the the breakup with uh, trailers and, and interviews and stuff like that is interesting. And I've got some really interesting interviews coming up as well. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival in particular is coming soon, in July, in fact. It's set in Melbourne, as the name suggests. And I have a few really, really interesting discussions with directors about their films that will be screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. I've also got some really, really interesting interviews coming up regarding a particular short film that's getting crowdfunded here in Perth. Really, really exciting interview with that one. And also about one of my favourite films that I've seen this year, which is Rockable. Uh, It is screening at... Revelation Film Festival in July and I have some really really exciting interviews coming up with that as well. I love that film. 
I really hope that you guys do too. So please don't let me down. And if you're in Perth, come along and see Rockable when it hits in Revelation. Uh, I know it's just had screenings at the Sydney Film Festival, and you know I hope that uh, you know people turn out for the Perth one because I think it's absolutely fantastic. Look, I banged on enough. I really hope that you're listening to this at 1.5 times speed, people. So this goes a little bit quicker, uh, but you know, slow it down for those music segments as well. Um, Please follow me on Twitter, on Facebook at the Curb AU. Uh, that would be fantastic. The page, the Facebook page, has got eighty-something likes. There has only been one post on it so far because the website, thecurb.com.au, launches on the first of July. Getting really excited about that. If you have any particular articles that you want me to to look into or to write up, hey, drop me a line at thecurbau at gmail.com. Or if you're one of those underrepresented voices that I, I like to talk about, you know, if you are a refugee and you want to talk about culture, reviews, whatever, drop me a line. If you're, if you're part of the LGBTIQ community, drop me a line. Let me know. Indigenous voices. I want to hear your indigenous voices. I want to hear your stories. Drop me a line. Thecurbau at gmail.com. I really appreciate it. And finally, hey, you know what? This is, I mean, it wouldn't be a podcast if there wasn't a Patreon page. I have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash thecurbau. And I have one supporter, really, really great guy, Tim Lego. I want to give you a shout out. Love this guy. He's fantastic. He's been a real supporter. Uh, he's a real supporter of AB Film Review when that was going as well. And he's a supporter of film all around the world as well. In particular, Criterion. He loves Criterion films as well. And so huge supporter of Tim. Love your work. Thank you very much for supporting me. And again, if you want to drop me a few dollars just to help the, the website going, most importantly, the, the main reason why I'm I'm running a Patreon page is not just to, to keep the website going. Uh, I'm happy to cover those fees all by myself, but I want to start being able to afford to pay writers and people having uh, voices shared out in the world. And to do that, I need your assistance. And that's where Patreon comes into it. As little as a dollar a month, all the way up to uh, $15, I think it is that I've got going on. You know, you can drop me as much as you want, really, basically on there, patreon.com forward slash the curb AU. All those links are in the show notes, uh, especially all the links for the uh, the music as well. Please do check out the Space Project band. It's fantastic. I absolutely love it. And hey, as they say on The Simpsons... I see you've played Knifey Spoony before. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.